We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. Pastor was correct when he said the book of James is where we will be. Been there the last uh, couple of times and we'll go back there again. The first verse says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, greetings. So that's the that's the introduction, and that is the announcement of who is the author, human author, of the book here. We've talked about that before. We've talked about this James and who he is, who we understood him to be in the historical context, that he was one of the sons of Mary, who was born to a, a brother of Jesus, as we say, uh, is born to Mary after Jesus was born. So this is who we have here. We took note of the fact that in verse number two, he says, my brethren, and then we correlated that with what he said in the first two verses, I mean, in the first verse, in identification of himself, where he used his name, and then he said he was a bond servant, and that's all he said in the first verse, and then he says brethren in this verse, and so these are the ways that he is self-identifying so that his audience knows who he is. One of the mentions that I made is that his use of brethren makes it clear that he is not seeing himself as someone who is elevated above them, but as someone who is one of them on the same level as they are. A man who is a, a faithful man, but a humble man. We understand from historical context that this James was a man of great influence. He had great importance in the church, a very, very significant involvement in the church at Jerusalem. But he doesn't say any of that in the introduction here. He has something to say to his audience. And his audience is not, uh, well, it is specified here. But after he says, my brethren, then he says, count it all joy. We like to be joyful, we like to rejoice, and we like to be happy. And so he says, count it all joy. Count what all joy? So we might be surprised if we were just reading and didn't know what was coming after to say, okay, well, what is it I'm supposed to have this joy in relation to? And then he says, well, when you fall into various trials, now that there's reason for a bit of pause to say, did I read that right? I did read it right. Counted all joy when you fall into various trials. So that's what he said to them. Now, we talked about these particular people who were the immediate audience or his initial audience and how they were in an environment where they 
there had been great persecution. And they were being persecuted. They were in a difficult environment in which to be as a Christian person, proclaiming Christ and saying that he is the Messiah, he is the promised one, and then to stand and take a position with regard to him, put them in jeopardy. We did make reference to Stephen, who was stoned uh, in this same era, to death just because of his testimony for the Lord. Stephen was an upright man. He was a good man. But he counted it not a mean thing to stand up for him, even while the stoners were stoning him to death. So we talked about those things. So, so the, they are now dispersed. And it says that here, kind uh, <clears> of <throat> joy for diverse temptations. And we may notice some of the things that are, are listed here. And I have thought again about the phrase that I use to say that, and Pastor tells us this all the time, and we go through it all the time in the men's meeting on Saturdays, is that when we read verses in the scripture, certain portions, we have to be careful to try to understand them in a proper way, which means that we don't just lift it out and do with it whatever seems good to us. And so when he says, count it all joy, we, we don't just say, okay, well, count it all joy means falling for trials. And that's like somebody having trials and say, oh, well, just be joyful and go on your way. Well, that's not right. <laughs> There's something wrong with that. But if we look at the context of what he's saying here, he says, okay, there's a reason. There's something more to understand. So do it, but not without understanding what else goes with it. And that's what the idea is here. And so he says, well, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So there's a bit of knowledge there. So if you have that knowledge and you're being told, okay, so it's going to produce something. Patience. What, what is patience? Well, we, we think about patience as a virtue, which means that that would be something that we would want and need. And so if this set of trials is going to help the development of that virtue in me, in us, then that's something to rejoice about, right? We can rejoice about that. Also, it says, let patience have its perfect work. And I think the way I've talked about it before is that, so there's something about the way, the attitude that we have about what happens. And whether we're going to make the effort to try to think about these things the way that God wants us to, or maybe we'll follow the pattern that seems to be, or one of the patterns that seem to be prominent in the world around us, and then have a different approach to it. But he says, let patience have its perfect work. That, and there's a purpose clause there, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So there's a gain for you, not a vain gain, but a spiritually worthwhile gain to be your portion as a consequence of doing the thing or as a result of doing what you should be doing. And this is what he's telling them to do. And then in verse five, uh, three, 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And 
also I mentioned before how we don't want to just take parts of the verse and say, well, if you lack wisdom, just ask, and it will be given, because to do it that way is not to do it the proper way. Ask of God. Verse 6 says, the asking is important, but it says in faith. In faith, and before I said, if you're going to ask in faith, that means you are in the faith. Otherwise, your asking is not in faith. So I'm using two ways of talking about that. In the faith. A lot of people are not in the faith. What do I mean by that? That's just another way that we talk about being a person who is born again, born again, born from above, salvation, in Christ Jesus, the way that we have been talking about that. So then he says, but let him ask in faith, in verse 6, without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. But let not that man suppose that he shall receive anything of the Lord. And again, what we have said is that there are some who ought not to expect to receive from the Lord. That one who is a double-minded person. It says in verse number 8, the one who is double-minded is unstable in all of his ways. That is not what someone would want if they were to think about the situation and say, my choice is to be unstable in everything. Just to be shifting back and forth, never settle. That's not good. That's not good. But in order to avoid it, you have to be, you have to make an effort. You have to have a purpose. You, ha- you have to have a, some kind of commitment to do the thing you need to do so that you can be stable. How, how else can we be stabilized? We can't. Except we do the things that are necessary to become stable. See, I think about often how, you know, the whole idea of a default, default value. You know about that, and people who deal with math and computer programming, all that, that brother's smile about A default value. So if you don't input certain things specifically, then there is a default. This is the thing that we don't need in our lives spiritually. There is a spiritually, spiritual default value, but it's going to take you down. So if you're not conscientious about your effort, then something naturally will be happening, but it will not be improving you in the virtue of patience or in any other spiritual virtue. So we need to be mindful of that. So then it says here then, in verse number nine, let the and verses nine to eleven, I before I talked about how I had put headings on some of the groups of verses and I didn't review what I put on each one of those, but you will see that verses five through eight is basically talking about wisdom, wisdom, and you know what to do if you lack wisdom and all that, and you ask. Well, these two verses, three three verses, nine through eleven, I call it the lowly and the rich. The lowly and the rich, and so that in their assemblies there were people with different uh, statuses in terms of the material blessings of the world, as we may put it. Uh, some rich, some poor, some in between, and that sort of thing. But 
brethren, brethren. So that those varying levels of wealth should not have been a problem and it shouldn't be among us. But he says here, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Now, this is, that's an interesting phrase. And then it says the rich in his humiliation. So what is he getting at here? If the lowly is going to glory, what should he glory in? His exaltation, what is that? Well, he says, James refers to these as brothers, right? And we can understand that God has put that lowly person who has not much of the material goods of the world in a high place in salvation. He should glory about that. Even if he has the less or the least it, with respect to the material, temporal things, he should rejoice in him who is his savior, rejoice in his exaltation. But the rich in his humiliation. Now, what about that? Well, see, the rich should consider he should not rejoice in his riches. So he should have a humble attitude about that. He should be humble in his attitude about his riches, his, his wealth. Why is that? Because that's a material, temporal thing. And so he should rejoice in his humiliation. He can understand that this is a temporal thing. And I, that's not where my efforts to rejoice should be. But now listen, now it must be very much of importance as to what was happening with the rich, the tendency. Because it goes on to say, listen to this. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. If he understands that, then he will have a humble attitude towards his riches. And he would not attempt to lord it over others because he has material, temporal things. And so we have both the lowly and the rich, and there is a proper attitude for each one as to how they should be thinking about their lot in life and about their relationship to the Lord. And so James is bringing those things to them and, and suggesting, telling them actually what they should be doing and how. I'm moving right along here. I'm going to go on to the next section. In verses 12 through 16, the head and I put on my notes, I said, temptation and testing. A call for understanding and discernment. This is a big topic. And 
Verse number 16 has the words, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That, my friends, is a tall order that we ought to keep out front in our thinking. He says, do not be deceived. That's important. You know, we make efforts in our daily affairs, in our business dealings, to try to afford, avoid falling victim to deceit. We make certain efforts. We do certain things to try to ensure that somebody is not deceiving us. But that's on the material level. So sometimes they might deceive us. And what happens to us? We lose some material thing. We lose some money. You know, some people lost big stuff, lots of money, material things. But the efforts and the energy people put in to avoid being deceived. But James, what he's talking about is far more important than any material thing. Because this is a spiritual matter. We're in a spiritual warfare. We have an enemy who has energy. And he has schemes and strategies. Now, we shouldn't be focusing all our energy on, oh, we've got this big enemy after us. But we should be mindful to say, okay, I've been told here, do not be deceived. You can read those words in 1 Corinthians, a couple of times, Galatians, 1 John. So to not be deceived is an important thing. Now, let me go back to verse 12. So I brought that in because when I was looking at this and I said, okay, do not be deceived. And I said, now, does this, it does follow the verses 12 through 16. But then when I look at what follows, and then I said, well, I wasn't quite sure whether do not be deceived. And so I put it, I see it as both. <laughs> it's because it can be deceived with regard to what comes before, and you can also be deceived with regard to what comes after. And so I just put it in the bowl section in the middle and said, do not be deceived, and I'm going to apply it to both of those sections here. Now let's go back to the first one, verse number 12. It said, blessed is the man who is who endures temptation. Now, blessed is, there is no question about that. So endure temptation. For when he is approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised uh, to those who, who love him. The crown of life. Or uh, the life in its fullness. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail <clears throat> as to what that is. People have different ideas as to this idea of a crown and life and all that. But we know that that life, that this is a, a wonderful thing that he says will be the result. That's the blessing for those who endure the temptation. And so that's important to say, okay, we need to, we need to work that one and be successful there. He will receive the crown of life. You can count on it. How do you know? Well, because the Lord promised you ever get into a situation with some person, they promise something, and you wonder, you wonder, are they going to keep the promise? Here you don't wonder, you know, because who the promiser is, and that's God. And so there's no question about that. 
And so when he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is approved or when he has passed the test, he will be shown uh, to be uh, approved and he will be received a crown of life. God promised it to those who love him. Let us all love him so that can be our own. But verse 13, let's go on here. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That's an interesting thought. So, do not be deceived into thinking that God is tempting you to evil. He's not. But temptation to evil happens. But God is not the author of it. God does test, and he sends test scenes, but not temptations to evil. God doesn't do that. So, do not say, I am tempted by God. But then in verse 14, it goes on to say, but each one is tempted. Each one is. And it's interesting the way that this is expressed. Because it uses a natural occurrence that we all understand about conception, birthing, growing, and even in the course of life coming to the end of it, where we use the word, we see death at the end. And he uses that kind of illustration to talk about the importance of what he has to say here. So he said, each one is tempted when... When he is drawn away by his own desires. His own. He owns those. Drawn away by those. And enticed. Then, when desire has conceived. So it's like the desire could be stamped out so that it doesn't conceive. Or it can be nurtured so that it does conceive. But when desire has conceived, it gives birth, birth to sin. Oh, that's a dreadful thing. A little small word, such a dreadful word, because that's what traps us and gets us set up to be on the wrong side of the things of God. But it said birth and sin, and when it's full grown, brings forth death. And then it said, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived. Don't blame God and say it's his fault. You know, one of the things that I find interesting is this. A lot of people do blame God. They see things that go on and they say it's God's fault. Or if he didn't, if it's not directly his fault, at least he allowed it to happen. And if he's God, why would he do that? But one thing that I find interesting is, you know what, people talk about that, but I don't find many who say, regarding the multitudinous, wonderful, good things that they see and that happen to them, crediting God for that. See, that's, a, that, that's kind of an irony, isn't it? Because most of the time, people, when they point to certain things, they're pointing to certain specific things, but 
in the broad realm of things, you can look at all of the wonderful, 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 wonderful things <laughs> that are gifts from God. I'm, ha- I'm standing here, and I have strength enough to stand up. And I don't feel wobbly. I feel able-bodied. Who should I credit to that? Me? No, not me. God, he should get the credit, right? But anyway, let me read on. Verse 17, and I'm going to go quickly to the time because I'm holding to the time that we're to end here. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So that's telling us that the giving and the good gifts, they come from God. So all these gifts, see, we live and we receive the gifts of God all the time. I marveled this morning. It's such a beautiful sunshine out. But that's a gift from God. God gave us that. We can enjoy it. It's from him. We should understand it. So those gifts are from him. But then there's a greater gift than all of that. As marvelous as his creation is, there's a greater gift. If we read the next verse, we see it. What does it say there? James is talking to his audience. And he's, his message is to all of us who are in the Lord. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so I'm going to end on that point. But I want to draw your attention to one thing before I close this. Now, notice here, I'm putting the emphasis in verse 18. It says, of his own will. Now, that's talking about God. It is for a vision of salvation. And so if you want to know what James's idea is as to how salvation comes, you know, people get this idea of works and grace and all this, and that James is talking about works. But he's all said right here. He gives you an answer there, so you don't have to really fret over that. So when we get to chapter 2, he's talking about works and grace and all that. But anyway, let me so I, here's what I want you to think about. Verse 18 says, of his own will. He's talking about God's own will. And then we read in verse 14, each one is tempted when he's drawn drawn away by his own desires. I just wanted to put those two in contrast, in opposition. God's will and our will. We should line up ours with his. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that you gave us today to come and to open the word. And we just ask you to open our hearts to it so that we might be blessed and bring honor and glory to the Lord our God. We ask in the name of Christ our Savior with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you. I appreciate your attention.